Lord, we thank you for your word. Again, it is by your word that we're led, that we are strengthened, that we're fed. And I pray that you would bless my brothers and sisters through the hearing of your word this evening. Even as you've promised in Revelation chapter 1, that blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy. I pray that you would bless my brothers and sisters and that you would encourage their hearts. Help me to be clear in regard to your word and help us to see how we might live in light of your truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So has uh, anybody ever broken a promise to you? Maybe um, a neighbor or a friend said they were going to borrow a tool and they would give it back and it never showed up again. Or maybe something more more personal. Uh, your dad said he was going to come to one of your ball games, promised he'd be there, and never showed up. Um, or maybe even something even more personal. Your spouse vowed to be always faithful to you, never to leave you, never to forsake you. And then they did. And if you live long enough, we learn that broken promises are a part of life. In fact, some cynics would say uh, promises are, let, are like records. They're meant to be broken. And humans are notoriously fickle creatures. In the words of the great philosopher John Bon Jovi, people will promise you heaven and take you through hell. And... But this is one of the aspects where God stands in marked contrast to his creatures. Because God always, always, always does what he says. He always keeps his promises. And every promise he has ever made will come to pass. In fact, I I do believe that is, in fact, the point of the passage before us in Revelation 11, 1 through 14. Uh, Very simple outline. Uh, before us, it's, the, of course, the revelation of the two witnesses, and it begins by a measuring of the temple, and it speaks of the preaching of the two witnesses in verses 3 through 6, and then their death, and then finally their resurrection in verses 11 through 14. Let's look at the first point, the measuring of the temple in verses 1 and 2. John writes, There was given to me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now this scene of the, the lampstand, or sorry, the, um, not lampstands, but the measuring of the temple, it actually harkens back to Ezekiel chapter 40 where Ezekiel has this vision of a man who's given a rod and he's told to go measure the temple. And then he's given exact measurements as to what this temple in Ezekiel is going to look like. In fact, the rest of the book of Ezekiel, over the next eight chapters, were given very intricate details as to what this temple is going to look like. And it's very uh, similar to the details given to the building of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. But here in Revelation, the point is that a large portion of the temple that will be rebuilt, it will be there because there's something to measure, 
a large portion of that rebuilt temple will be given over to the Gentiles. And it's going to be desecrated. Uh, There will be a portion that's preserved, uh, the inner courts with the altar. However, we also know from other scriptures that that inner portion of the temple will also be desecrated at the beginning of this three and a half year period. We know that because um, that's been revealed to us again in other scriptures. Um, Daniel 9, 27 says, and he shall, referring to the Antichrist, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half the week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So it's speaking about the, the, um, this coming king, he will desecrate the temple. What's later referred to as the abomination of desolation by Jesus. In Mark 13, we'll look at that in a second. But it says that um, this will happen after a treaty has been made, most likely with Israel, for three and a half years. After three and a half years, he will desecrate the temple. And Jesus tells us what this will look like in Mark 13, beginning in verse 14. It says there, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Skip down to verse 19. For in those days there will be such as tribulation has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So Jesus says after this abomination of desolation takes place, By this coming king, uh, there will be three and a half years left. And, of course, the beginning of this time, he's saying that whoever's around in Jerusalem must flee. And then Paul gives further information about this event in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says this, beginning in verse 3, we'll read verse 3 and 4. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. It's referring to the Antichrist, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So that's what he's going to do. He's going to desecrate the temple by basically claiming it to be his throne. And he's going to demand that all people worship him, uh, defiling the temple. But the point here in Revelation 11 is that this, that all of Jerusalem will be under the control of the Gentiles during this time period for three and a half years. Although the temple itself will not be destroyed, in fact, it will be preserved. And that's what's being made clear here. But the most important point is that Uh, Not just the temple will be preserved, but the Jewish people themselves. Note what is measured here besides the temple. John was told in verse 1, not only to measure the temple, but also those who worship in it. Who worships in the temple? It's the Jews. Another way of saying is not only is the temple going to be preserved, but the Jewish people are going to be preserved. God has a remnant. 
that he's going to save. And this, these people will be preserved through the preaching of the two witnesses, which who will preach for 42 months, which are three and a half years. So after this abomination of desolation, uh, two witnesses will arise and they will preach during that three and a half year time period where great destruction will be coming upon the earth. And the same time period is noted in chapter 13, verse 5, also in chapter 12, verse 4, where it's referred to as a time, times, and a half time. We saw that same phrase in Daniel, or similar phrase. It's also described as 1,260 days in verse 3 and also 12.6. So, again, this constitutes the three and a half uh, years, the second three and a half years of the seven year period called the tribulation. And of course, that's when the two witnesses will prophesy and preach for the repentance of Israel. And that's who's introduced to, it, uh, to us in verses three through six. Verse three, it says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 260 days clothed in sackcloth. So they're going to prophesy while being clothed in sackcloth. Now, that's significant. Uh, sackcloth was a, a rough garment. Uh, typically, it was made of goat's hair or camel's hair. And it was worn by people as a, uh, a way of demonstrating repentance and remorse over sin. Now, you might recall this was what John the Baptist wore, right? When he preached, he wore a coat of camel's hair. Because part of his calling was to call for the repentance of Israel. Uh, Matthew 3, 4, it says, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Uh, when, when Jeremiah foretold the coming judgment that would fall upon Israel, he said that they needed to put on sackcloth, lament and wail for the fierce anger of Yahweh has not turned back from us. Jeremiah 4, 8, probably looking forward ultimately to this time when Jerusalem would be handed over to the Gentiles. And he's calling them to put on sackcloth as a sign of mourning. And there's also a remarkable account in 1 Kings chapter 1. Uh, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 21. Yeah, Sorry about that. 2 Kings 21, uh, verse 27. First Kings 21. Let me look that up. I think my note here is wrong. All right. Yeah. First Kings 21. First Kings 21, verse 27. is where King Ahab put on sackcloth as a sign of repentance and mourning towards God. He hears this great uh, judgment that God is going to pour out upon him because of his disobedience rebellion. And it says in verse 27, when Ahab heard these war words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. 
And I mention this story because it shows not only the mercy of God upon Ahab, but that even after years of hard-hearted rebellion, God still chooses to bring such sinners to repentance. I mean, Ahab's one of the most notorious people in all of Scripture. And here we see him broken over his sin. Uh, Presumably sincerely repentant, for God responds to it. Well, these two witnesses, it says, will be clothed in sackcloth because like John the Baptist and like Elijah, they will be calling Israel to repentance. And they're symbolically described as also in uh, the, this verse as two olive trees in lampstands. Verse four, and the, the symbolism is drawn actually from Zechariah chapter four, where in that prophecy They're symbolic of the king of Israel at the time and the high priest of Israel. Uh, The point in Zechariah 4 is that though the king and the high priest would be the one that would bring light and restoration to the people. And similarly, in this context, they signify that God is going to provide these two witnesses as lights in the spiritual darkness that can't be extinguished. So there are lights like the, the menorah or the lampstand. But there are also two olive trees. Again, so the idea is the, the, the lights always have the oil they need from those olive trees to continue to burn. Nothing can extinguish these two witnesses' light, is the point. And in fact, in uh, verse 5, it says that if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So that if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. So this is a shocking statement. And so, such a shocking statement that many, many scholars want to interpret this as just simply being symbolic of fiery preaching. Fire and brimstone preaching. Preaching of judgment that's coming out of their mouths, not literal fire. Now, although fire, as we've seen before in Revelation, it is symbolic of judgment. The text says that fire from their mouths kills people who seek to harm them. So if you're just going to say that this is simply words, you've got to reinterpret what kill means. Now, we know that words can hurt people. That's, that's why hate speech is vilified on university campuses, except hate speech towards certain people. But nevertheless, speech we know doesn't literally kill people. So for to take this as merely being symbolic of fiery words of judgment, what does it mean that people are killed by this? In fact, I would say if you, if you want to just make this as being figurative language, it actually rips the passage out of all of its weight, its power. And I think it's eliminating the very point this verse is making. That these witnesses are preserved and that those who attack them will be destroyed. And if we should take this as symbolic, we should also interpret Old Testament passage, passages where this such fiery judgment also took place as symbolic. Because this is not the first time this has happened. In fact, there's many uh, precedents in Scripture where fiery judgment came upon those who attacked the Lord's servants. Uh, We'll just take Leviticus 10. That's not an attacking of the servant, but a defiling of a tabernacle. When Nadab and Abihu offered up strange fire before the Lord. They were priests. They were Aaron's sons. 
But because they didn't follow instructions, it says fire came from the Lord and consumed them. Leviticus 10.2 and Numbers 11, when people complained about their misfortunes and really were rebellious against Moses and Aaron, it said then that when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Also during Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16, 250 men presumed that they were going to ordain themselves as priests. They were Levites, but they weren't priests. And they took on this uh, assumption that they could act as priests and they could offer up incense. And it says that the Lord killed every single one of them in fire. Number 1635. Fire came out from Yahweh and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. And so all these judgments I just read were fiery judgments that came upon Israel when Moses was leading them in the wilderness. But also in 2 Kings... When Ahaziah, king of Israel, came after Elijah, fire came down from heaven upon uh, Ahaziah's men that were sent to capture Elijah. In fact, <laughs> the, a captain would go out with 50 men and fire would consume all of them. The second time, a captain came out with 50 men, fire consumed all of them. Third time, the captain came and he begged Elijah for mercy. He says, I don't want me and my men to die. And God had mercy on them and... Elijah went with him. And Elijah says in 2 Kings 1.10, Elijah answered the captain of 50, I'm a man of God. Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. That's what he said to the second man. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So you have fire coming down through the ministry of Moses and fire coming down through the ministry of Elijah. And the text indicates that that's precisely who these two witnesses are who pour out this fiery judgment. And this is made clear by the first miracles, by the miracles and judgment they perform in verse 6. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days they're prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So the miracles and judgment they perform are the same miracles Moses and Elijah performed, right? Elijah, well known for shutting up the sky for a number of years. He prayed and then the rain came. Uh, Malachi chapter four, verse five. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, there was that judgment. Right. Um, another reason to believe that this is Moses and Elijah. You have the Jewish tradition uh, that expected Moses and Elijah to return. Uh, they expected Elijah to return because of Malachi chapter four, where it says, behold, I'll send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children, to their fathers. lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So they expected Elijah to come back. Also, they expected Moses to return because of what was written in Deuteronomy 18.15, where it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among them, from among your brothers. It's to him you shall listen. A third reason to recognize this is Moses and Elijah is that both the bodies of these prophets were taken to an undisclosed location. 
right? Elijah was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. Never saw his body again. And Moses, it actually says in Deuteronomy chapter 34, 5 and 6, was, had his body taken by God to an undisclosed location. It's mentioned also in Jude 9. So, their bodies were taken. Fourthly, most convincingly of all, the very two people we see with the glorified Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration happens to be Moses and Elijah. And it would make sense if God had taken them to be with him, that these would be the two people that he has with them at the Mount of Transfiguration and the very two people he would have serve as witnesses to the Jewish people representing the law and the prophets. It says in Matthew 17, 3, again, he was transfigured before him and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, those two people, not people like Moses and Elijah. It says Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, it's remarkable that we don't doubt the testimony of the gospel account. That was Jesus with Moses and Elijah. So why do Bible interpreters insist that this cannot be Moses and Elijah also, but only preachers like them who preach powerful sermons? And I think the reason people interpret that this way is because we get intimidated by the supernaturalism in the Bible. It makes us uncomfortable. Like we're okay if it's in ancient times, but for us to expect such supernatural events to happen now in our modern world and in the future where we'll be more modern, so to speak, or postmodern, like that's really unthinkable. I mean, I think it just, it just shows that maybe our, our confidence in the Word of God is not what it should be. If we believe that Moses and Elijah did these miracles in the past, and they were with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, why not assume that that's exactly who's being spoken of here? And I think we should, given all of these reasons. But especially, they performed the very miracles that Moses and Elijah performed. For instance, like Elijah, it says they will be able to shut up the heavens and keep it from raiding. Right? This is the power exercised by Elijah over, the, over King Ahab uh, during his reign. For three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Three and a half years. That's remarkable. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and earth bore its fruit. It also says that these two witnesses will have the power to turn water into blood and to strike the earth with plagues. And of course, this is what Moses did, right? He turned the water, the Nile River, into blood. And then, of course, all the plagues that were poured out on the Egyptians. And because I think these are the very judgments that were performed by Moses and Elijah, that likely that's exactly who's being spoken of here. But it does beg this question, well, why would God want to bring Moses and Elijah back? Hadn't he already brought him to himself? Why would he bring him back to the earth in order to just eventually get killed when he could use anybody? Well, I think the reason he's bringing Moses and Elijah back is because these are two of the greatest heroes in Israelite history. These are pillars of Israel. And the very aim of sending these 
witnesses is to call Israel to repentance. Who better to call Israel to repentance than the very people they say they admire more than all others? Their whole history and traditions is built off the law and the prophets. Now, it's possible that these two witnesses could just be people like John the Baptist who simply function with the power of Elijah and Moses. That's possible. But again, given the fact that their bodies mysteriously disappeared, they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, I think it's very strong evidence that these are the very two prophets back, brought back to earth for this very purpose and time. Now, again, I'd say probably most scholars especially those of an amillennial bent, uh, understand these two witnesses as just simply being uh, uh, symbolic of uh, preaching during the church age. So from the time Christ rose from the dead till he returns, uh, this is just, this signifies the importance of witnessing for Christ, of preaching boldly. Now that's possible, but I think if you take that interpretation, it strips the whole passage of its power. And, it, and, and it, makes, it makes the imagery very confusing at that point. Because what does it mean that fire comes from their mouth and it kills people and that they perform these miracles? I don't know of any preacher in the last 2,000 years that's turned water into blood or that's been able to shut up the sky from heaven. I mean, if you're saying that, I mean, I guess they could, they could say, well, it looks like it just shows that we need to have, that there's power in preaching, there's power in prayer. Well, there is. But why... Take such an extreme example to try and say that. Why don't you say there's power in preaching and prayer? Why it actually, by the very suggestion, again, it, it, makes, it makes interpreting the passage this way makes this passage very anemic. I think turns it on its head. I think it's true faithful preachers will preach repentance and people will hate us for it. But again, it's not historically true that preachers have the power to shut the sky and perform miracles. And that's what makes these witnesses unique. So this passage, I think, is foretelling the powerful judgment of two literal men whose presence in preaching in Israel is precisely what will lead many Jews to trust in their Messiah. As they hear the law and the prophets taught by the man who wrote down the law and the most significant prophet other than Christ. Namely, Elijah and Moses. Let's bring us to the death of the two witnesses. Verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now, note that the text specifically says their death will not occur until after they finish their testimony. Now, that's, that's important for us to realize. Because it shows that what happens is when they're killed, it's not some freak accident. It's not some fluke. It happened precisely when God wanted it to happen. They finish their testimony, and it's not until after that testimony that they're actually killed. Right? As the Apostle Peter said of Jesus, who he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Likewise, these men. And the efficient cause of their death, we're told, is the, be the beast that comes from the abyss. Now, that, this is actually the first time 
the beast is referred to here in Revelation. We'll get much more explanation in the weeks ahead about the beast. But what it, what it does say here is that he will eventually overcome them. It's that uh, word that was repeated multiple times earlier in the book of Revelation. It could be conquer. It's one of the only... It, the, one of two times in Revelation that this word overcome is used in a negative sense. And it's here. He will overcome them and kill them. And their corpses would put on display, rotting for all to see in the streets of Jerusalem. And we know it's Jerusalem, this great city that's referred to here. Because it says in verse 8 that this happens to be the city where their Lord was crucified. Well, <laughs> we know Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. So it's referring to Jerusalem. But then it also says that this Jerusalem is called Sodom and Egypt. Which tells us that at this time, Jerusalem is going to be more like Israel's worst enemies. The pagan peoples around them more than like God. They will be defined by gross sexual immorality and paganism in their worship. And so just as these men preach for three and a half years, so to shame them, these, their bodies are exposed for three and a half days as they rot in full view of the public. And it says that people rejoice over their deaths at this time. I mean, so it's going to be like Christmas for the rest of the world after these men are killed. Because it says they're going to re- celebrate and give gifts to one another. Because these men were such a nuisance. But this is not the end of the story. As we look at verses 11 through 14. The resurrection of the two witnesses. Three and a half days later, it says they will rise just like Christ. And the effect of their resurrection is going to be devastating. Because it says, great fear fell upon all those who were watching them. And then they rise up to heaven And they hear a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up into heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. The people that were just rejoicing and celebrating and giving gifts are in dread because these men are now alive. They've been resurrected. And then right at that moment, a massive earthquake hits Jerusalem and a tenth of the city is destroyed. It's decimated. 7,000 people die. And those who are not killed... Again, are struck with terror as they await what will happen next. And the result, of course, is that the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, the phrase the rest here must refer to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That is the Jews who are left. And note what it says. They gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, this is no light declaration. Because in the Old Testament, the phrase give glory to God was used when calling people to repentance. It's Joshua used it with Achan in Joshua 7.19. In 1 Samuel 6.5, it actually is used to describe the Philistines who were giving the ark back. <laughs> Their diviners told them, well, if you uh, give glory to God, you send back this, uh, this ark also, Jeremiah thirteen sixteen. when he calls Israel to repentance, he says this, Give glory to Yahweh your God before he brings darkness, 
before your feet stumble in the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it to gloom and makes it deep darkness. So it's a to give glory to God is a sign of repentance. But also. Elsewhere in Scripture, particularly in Revelation, it's a mark of genuine repentance and worship Uh, in Revelation four, nine speaks of giving glory to God. And then in Revelation 14, seven. It says that uh, um, the, the angel flying him in heaven. Preach, saying, fear God and give him glory. In Revelation 16, 9. It says, men were scorched with fear of heat, and they blasted the name of God who is. That, that's not the right verse. Clearly not. Oh, did I miss it? Oh, and they told you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, I got a little early and they did not repent so as to give him glory. So the call is to give him glory, but they wouldn't. And then uh, 19.7, same thing. Let the marriage of the Lamb this time. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. So those who are giving Him glory are repentance. Those who don't are the ones who are hard-hearted. Same phrase in Luke 17, 18 and 19 and Romans 4.20. So the point being is that the rest of the Jews who are in Jerusalem at this time, who up till now have been Haters of God, haters of the two prophets, when they see these two witnesses rise from the dead and the earthquake hits, they will all have their eyes opened and in fear they will give glory to God and finally come to repentance. God, as it said in the very beginning of this chapter, had them set apart. He would preserve a remnant. And it's now... When that remnant that he has promised to preserve until the last days uh, repent and believe. And all Israel, as it says in Romans 11, is saved. So at this point, at the end of all things, right before the sounding of the last trumpet, it's when God will finally fulfill his promise to Abraham. And the promise that he made to his people in Jeremiah chapter 31. And I want you to read this section again, because this is this is, I think, what the whole passage is about. The fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, we're familiar with it because of uh, because because of Christ. But I want to begin reading in verse 33. It's the passage on the new covenant. And this covenant, of course, is given to Israel. It says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. They shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, no Yahweh, but they shall all know me. This is he speaking to Israel here from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Verse 35, keep reading. Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that the waves roar. Yahweh opposes his name. He's describing his consistency and his power. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares Yahweh, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says Yahweh, if the heavens can be measured And the foundations of the earth below can be explored. Then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel 
for all that they have done, declares the Lord. In other words, it can't happen. I have promised that I will preserve my people. And I will bring my people home with me to glory. And we want to know, well, when has it happened? Because for years we've been waiting for the repentance of Israel. Even to this day, the majority of Jews have rejected their Messiah. But it's at this point that they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will believe. And then Christ will return. The point is, if God can still bring stiff-necked people to repentance, and He wants to, well then, brothers and sisters, we must not lose hope for our loved ones, who, even still, they might have known the Gospel and turned away from Christ. We have a God who loves to be patient with even the most hard-hearted of people. And we must not lose heart that they still might come to repentance. Let's continue to pray for them. Let's do so even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of love. Lord, that you always you extend patience. Your loving kindness is, is without measure as is particularly shown to the people of Israel who for millennia have rebelled against you with very few periods of worship and thankfulness and trust. And Lord, we realize even as Gentiles that the only reason we get the benefits that you have promised to them is because we're in Christ. And we thank you, Christ, that you, you will save the nation of Israel. And that you all, you've also chosen to save a people amongst every nation, tribe and people on the, on, the, on the planet. And I pray that you would have mercy upon the family members of my brothers and sisters here who have hardened their heart and turned their back on you that you would have mercy upon their souls, even as you had mercy upon Israel. And if there's anything we can do to, to participate in their restoration, we ask for grace and power to bring that about. We pray these things in Jesus' name.